Welcome to Lifeblood. This is George G. And the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Dr. Ron Sinha. Dr. Ron, are you ready to do this? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, let's go. Dr. Ron is the Senior Medical Director of Employer Strategy for Sutter Health. He's the Chief Medical Officer for the Silicon Valley Employers Forum, and he's the author of The South Asian Health Solution, A Culturally Tailored Guide to Lose Fat. Dr. Ron, excited to have you on. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I am an internal medicine physician and I'm practicing right now in the Bay Area. So, uh, you know, I started off doing primary care medicine, which, as many of you know, um, deals a lot with chronic health conditions like blood pressure, diabetes, etc. And the way my journey sort of started, and I'm kind of fast forwarding because I'm not going to start with my childhood and things unless that's relevant <laughs> later on. But, but the way I kind of started my journey is when I came out of medical training, there was a certain vision I had of individuals that have chronic health conditions, um, just based on case studies and things you learn in medical school. But when I got out into the real world, I realized that, boy, this is a very different world, especially coming to the Bay Area and seeing a lot of young entrepreneurs, techies, software engineers, and folks developing chronic health conditions that I would have expected developed, you should develop decades later. So to be more specific, seeing 30-year-olds with their first heart attack or having a diagnosis of diabetes very early on. In the beginning, I was pretty startled by that. I was like, okay, these just must be anomalies. But as I looked at the research, especially in specific ethnic groups, I realized that these are conditions that can start very early on in life. And um, it really changed my lens. The other thing that it actually taught me was not everybody with heart disease or a condition like cancer is a smoker that eats red meat. Um, a lot of these folks are folks that are actually doing a lot of exercise, eating a relatively healthy diet. But honestly, it is their sleep schedule. It's their chronic stress. All these factors that are not traditional risk factors for heart disease that you learn about in medical school, they're really manifesting in this sort of intense Silicon Valley environment, which can be extrapolated to really any intense work environment. And really fast forwarding to now, um, especially after the pandemic, I'm finding a lot of those factors have been magnified even more with work from home and all the stress we're dealing with, even more sleep dysfunction. And really, now that I'm even seeing older teens in my practice, seeing things like high blood pressure in teenagers that are applying for college, you know, like things that I'd never come across before. So, you know, my passion based on that has been to really create health education resources, go out and talk to Silicon Valley companies, and really educate the public about what are the things that they need to focus on as employers? What do employers and HR leaders need to focus on? Because their employees clearly, you know, companies care about their employees, but they also care about the bottom line. And if they're paying for the health insurance of their employees and they're developing heart disease and diabetes risk in their 20s and 30s, that's going to be a big issue. So, so that's what really motivated me to create the book, create the programs that I'm doing. And then I do have a clinical practice a couple of days a week where I'm seeing patients individually. And just learning about the habits that are really driving a lot of these chronic health conditions. So so that's kind of a high level to serve a lot of the work that I'm doing. Nice. Well, I appreciate that. Facet awful slash fascinating <laughs> right. that you're running into young people who are who, who are struggling with these um and trying to figure out and take a big step back and change that lens. And what is what are the causes of these? How can yeah. we start working to prevent these? Um, and, and what are the habits and certainly companies, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that companies want the best for their employees, but they also want to make money. So we need sure. to optimize these folks so that they are showing up hundred percent and leading happy and healthy lives. Exactly. 
so how do you start to crack that nut? I mean, individually, I, as a human being, I need to, uh, you know, attend to all these things. But how do you how do you work with a company and say, okay, let's let's push this out in a way that's actually going to be absorbed? So you know, um, a lot of folks in these companies, and not just focusing on tech companies, but many of us are really driven by metrics and numbers, right? And the problem right now, George, with the traditional healthcare system is the way we identify disease. It's a very downstream process, right? So we're going to wait for your glucose numbers and your A1C to enter a range called pre-diabetes or diabetes before we act upon your health. And one of the tricks here is that the earlier we can identify and intervene on signals that the traditional healthcare system is not emphasizing, that's when we can really reverse health conditions. So I typically see a lot of patients, for example, from Asian backgrounds where diabetes is rampant in the family. And they literally feel like um, genetically, they're just predestined to get diabetes. But I will sit down and teach them, how do you actually interpret your cholesterol panel in a way that can actually thwart diabetes later on. And to give you a very specific example, because I want to make this practical for your audience too, is instead of waiting for your blood sugar to get into the pre-diabetes range, there's a couple of early signals you can tell that might put you at risk for heart disease. And again, these are my individuals that had early heart disease, even without having diabetes. So for example, if the waistline's a little bit beyond the limit that we would set for somebody, and to be very specific, um, you take your height in inches and you divide that by two, and you Usually that should be the upper limit of where your waistline should be. So I'm very waistline focused because total body weight is very misleading. I have patients that are elite athletes and bodybuilders. They're going to be above the body mass index threshold, but they have a lot of lean body mass and low fat. So weight doesn't is not very useful. On the other hand, I have very slender skinny patients in my practice that have heart disease in their 30s and 40s. So their weight is normal. But if you look at their body composition, they have very little muscle and they have a little bit of belly fat around their stomach. And that's enough to trigger disease. So really being aware of what is healthy body shape is one important thing. The second thing just to throw at you too, is when most of us have hopefully had a baseline cholesterol panel, the cholesterol doesn't have blood sugar in it. But if you've got issues like slightly elevated triglycerides, low levels of healthy cholesterol, what we call HDL, those are very early markers for future diabetes and heart disease risk that actually happen even 10 to 15 years before your blood sugar goes up. So really educating the public about what are early markers that you can track and you know act upon now because it's so much easier to reverse this condition when it's in the pre-pre-diabetes stage than when you develop full-blown pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. And then if you track those numbers, and most doctors are willing to get your labs checked instead of waiting three years like the standard guidelines say, let's check it in four months or six months after you make X, Y, and Z changes, and then see those numbers move. And metrics are a big motivator. Rather than giving general guidelines on, hey, eat less and exercise more, that mantra has been around for decades. We know how effective that's been in combating diabetes and chronic health conditions. So knowing those numbers is a really critical part of how I approach it. And that's the message I take to employers. And that's why they love my talks, because I approach it. I tell them, I'm going to teach you about the operating system of your metabolism. And here are the metrics we need to aim for to really improve your health and well-being. That's kind of the approach that I take. That makes a ton of sense. And, and I certainly think it's the right approach. And the belly fat, <clears throat> is belly fat the worst kind of fat, doctor? Yeah, you know, it's a waistline fat. So there's two different types of fat in the body. So the belly fat is what we roughly talk about. It's the visceral fat. It's the fat 
that lines our organs. So when you, you've got that extra belly fat, that is the one that releases chemicals that can drive heart disease, cancer, and even Alzheimer's risk. Then we have the subcutaneous fat, which is like our arms, legs, and thighs. And that contributes to total body weight, but it tends to be more inert. So there are, for example, patients in my practice, women that have a lot of subcutaneous fat that they clearly want to lose. Their visceral fat is not necessarily as high relative to subcutaneous fat. So their overall risk is really not as bad. Now, one thing I do want to highlight is there's a lot of you know, news around belly fat, and it can actually drive people to be very obsessive. Like I have men and women that come into my clinic, and they're like, unless I have a six pack, you know, it's like, I'm not going to be healthy. And I remind them that this is one metric. And for a lot of patients, just losing an inch or two and bringing their triglycerides and blood sugar back down to normal, that's all they need to do. Because otherwise, I have a lot of busy entrepreneurs that have become body obsessed with intermittent fasting and going on intensive keto diets, which can be helpful to some degree, but sometimes they're developing borderline eating disorders. So I do want people to be waistline focused, but not waistline obsessed, especially given the constraints of their lifestyle in terms of what goal they're reaching for. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting and, and fine line of being a healthy, functional human being that has a sustainable that has sustainable habits and I have a legitimate eating disorder and some sort of form of body dysmorphia. Exactly right. Those are the perfect terms for that. Exactly right. So, and then it's going to be, <clears throat> how important is it to, to, to consistently do that blood monitoring? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get the terms right. How, no, how, how, how valuable is it to, to, to do like a glucose monitor to know this is how my body is actually responding to the food I'm putting in it? Yeah, great point. So in a traditional healthcare system, so, so first of all, when I see individuals and we get a baseline cholesterol panel, blood sugar testing done, many individuals have perfect numbers. So it's not like I'm going to, you know, prick them and get a blood check every three months or every four months. You know, sometimes it could be even twice a year for patients that look metabolically healthy. So that's the great side of the spectrum. But then there are individuals that are already developing chronic health uh, conditions, or they might have borderline conditions. And in those patients, I tend to be more aggressive. It might be every three months, it might be every six, but initially I want to keep them really motivated because, you know, if they make very simple changes. For example, some of them, breakfast is a killer meal. It's like they're eating a lot of carbohydrates and bagels and what they think are healthy breakfast cereals. And I'm like, let's just change this breakfast and you will see your blood sugar and triglycerides improve within four to six weeks. So if I can give them some, literally some low hanging fruit where they see some metrics that are beneficial, that gets the momentum moving. Now they're like, okay, Dr. Ron, I'm ready to do the next thing. Um, so, so, so it really depends on that. Now, what you brought up is an interesting piece of new technology that I do use in my clinic called the continuous glucose monitor or CGM. And these are actually game changers because right now when you go to a doctor's office, they'll check your blood tests. They'll say, you know, eat healthy, exercise more and come back and see me in three, six months or a year. And sometimes patients won't come back for another two years. And in between, they don't really know what's happening to their body because you're not getting real time feedback. You're going to come back and maybe that lifestyle experiment worked or it didn't work. But continuous glucose monitors are sensors that you literally put on you use an uh, applicator, you attach to your arm, and you can in real time see what's happening to your glucose and perform food experiments. So these are a lot of the programs that I run and what I do in my clinics, because now we can see the individual variability. So for example, 
oatmeal might be great for your blood glucose. It might destroy my blood glucose. You know, certain specific foods that are, let's say, low carb or keto friendly. It's amazing how some of those are raising more blood glucose in my patients than others. Because, you know, food manufacturers have now you know, glommed on to keto and low carb dieting, and they're finding ways to manufacture foods that have that label. But when you see the glucose response, often it can be astounding. These hmm. protein bars or these high protein shakes. Now, if you go to a market, everything's about protein, right? 25 grams of protein, protein chips, protein cookies. And people think, yeah, I'm doing so much good to my body. I'm going to build muscle by having protein chips, but their glucose is just haywire as a result of these foods. So I hope one of the things I'm pushing for, I want these glucose sensors to be a mainstream part of the practice because right now they're just approved for people that have insulin requiring diabetes. But that's why we're launching some pilot programs for Silicon Valley companies where anyone can come into a program, get a glucose center prescription, and then they're often running to understand what is food, stress, and sleep, and activity doing to their blood glucose. And these sensors, by the way, are over the counter in Canada and Europe, and I hope they're going to be over the counter here soon, just like getting a Fitbit or wearable, where you wouldn't need a little bit of physician inside or somebody who knows how to use these. But but I think this is going to be the next generation, hopefully, of health and wellness is using these sensors more broadly. How does sleep impact my blood glucose? you would be shocked. I mean, I have individuals that are doing everything right. And I'm somebody who's very sleep sensitive. What I mean by that is these are individuals that are doing everything right from an exercise and nutrition perspective, but because their sleep is lower quality or it's a little bit disrupted during the night or they're waking up prematurely, they wake up with a blood sugar that's almost in the diabetes range or even pre-diabetes range. And they tell me what the heck's happening. I'm doing 16-8 fasting. I had my, I finished my dinner at 6 p.m. It was keto. There's no carbs. Where is that glucose freaking coming from? And this is the unbelievable thing about the body because when you go to bed in a state of high stress, your liver can manufacture glucose out of anything. You know, because it's literally trying to protect you during the nighttime. It needs to give you energy. So cortisol levels, which is our stress hormone, when they go up during the nighttime, and especially in the twilight hours, they can cause a surge of glucose in the morning. And I would say having a little pulse of glucose in the morning is fine. It's like your body's already pouring breakfast into your blood system. So you can have some energy to do your workout. You can do cognitive tasks. So it's not that dangerous. But if you're consistently seeing spikes, I tell people, listen, don't go lower carb. If anything, if you're too low carb before bedtime, you're sending an even stronger signal that this person has low glucose stores and then the liver will do everything it can to spike glucose. But that's the beauty of the program is it's actually motivated a lot of my entrepreneurs to really take, they've, they've read all the headlines around sleep, but until you see the impact of poor sleep on glucose, you don't really believe it. And that really teaches people to really um, perform better sleep hygiene around that. The second thing on that note I want to mention is the impact of emotional stress on glucose is ridiculous. Like you will not believe until you see what happens after conflict, what can happen to your glucose level. So somebody from my team, I use this as an anecdote in one of my um, programs. She had the most, she had unbelievable, I mean, she's young, beautiful blood sugars all the time. And then she basically noted in her diary uh, a conflict with her in-laws and her glucose went up to like 170, 180, never had it gone that high before. And she literally afterwards did some breathing. She went outside, she came back, she had chocolate cake with her in-laws and her glucose did not go nearly as high from eating chocolate <laughs> cake. So I wrote a blog post saying your in-laws can be more dangerous than chocolate cake when it comes to your glucose, but it gives you a sense that these things like sleep and emotions, boy, can they have an impact on your glucose glucose. And, and we use that as a hook to really get people to focus on sleep hygiene and mindfulness. All the things we know intuitively are good for us, but when you see the impact on glucose, it's very powerful. 
That's fascinating. It's not interesting to me that my in-laws can make me unhealthy, doctor. <laughs> Luckily, I've got great in-laws, but yeah, all of us have those problematic folks in our lives that we have to really uh, learn how to deal with in a better way. So, and, and 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 then mindfulness and some kind of a mindfulness practice, if it's meditation, can actually then reduce that. Is it absolutely? And you know what? I'll yeah, I, I agree. So if you start off the morning with some sort of practice. This, you know, whether it's mindfulness, getting out, doing some breathing, it could be mindful walking. Like, you know, my routine is I take the dog out for a walk, but many of us take our dogs out for a walk, but our brain is buzzing around conflict or what we have to do during the day. But for me, that's an opportunity to just focus on my walking. And I literally try to get inside the head of my dog. Like I see what my dog's doing. I'm like really trying to be mindful during that walk just so I can start off in a state because I do tend to wake up very sort of ready to go, you know, which is good for some things, but but I know my battery is going to run out if I start off screaming with my battery running full flood. So, you know, for me, it's really doing something, some form of exercise where I'm focused on that task um, and then really resetting and coming into, you know, the rest of the day in a smoother way rather than starting off too activated and agitated. So it seems so obvious when 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 we're talking about it, that that how what, I, what we're focusing our attention on also has an impact on what's going on in my, my blood sugar and everything else. So Right. Yeah, absolutely. Is it possible to get too much sleep? Good point. So, so when you look at sleep data, when you start going up into the eight, nine plus hour range, it looks like that's associated with poor um, health outcomes. And it's not necessarily that physiologically that amount of sleep is bad for the body, but it often reflects either individuals that might have other health issues. Like for example, some people with mental health issues like chronic depression, um, they can sometimes be oversleepers. They just don't have much motivation. Their cortisol levels, which we should have some stress hormone to activate us, tends to run low. So adrenally fatigued people that are not producing cortisol, they might be oversleepers. So, so it is something to be wary of. And even people that have sleep um, disordered breathing, sometimes they're not oxygenating very well during the nighttime. And they're sort of hungover and sort of drowsy during the morning, and then they'll end up oversleeping uh, as an effect from that. So definitely oversleeping can be a signal of something else going on. But there are also some folks that do get eight to nine hours of sleep and they function fine. So, so how your mood is and how you're functioning during the day, that's a rough surrogate marker of whether you're getting enough sleep. You know, if you're consistently getting sleepy during the daytime, especially in the mid morning, the early afternoons with no reason for that to happen, and you're driving to work and you're getting drowsy, those are signs that you've really got to see your doctor and maybe get a sleep study done to make sure you don't have a sleep breathing disorder or something like that. And we're seeing a lot, by the way, the trends in sleep disordered breathing are going up like crazy. So many of my patients, when they get a sleep test, they're not oxygenating their brain properly. And even slim folks, again, in med school, we learned that these sleep issues are in people that are very overweight with thick necks, but chronically stressed out women entrepreneurs. I see so much sleep apnea in these patients. Um, I've done some blog posts and podcasts on it, but, but, you know, we have to be aware of the fact that if we're definitely not getting that, that adequate sleep during the nighttime from poor oxygenation, it can lead to a lot of daytime fatigue so and glucose elevations as a result of that everything is killing us doctor <laughs> <laughs> no but you know uh, yeah I, maybe i'm painting a bit of a pessimistic picture here not but, at all i'm just but, kidding <laughs> not at all right but you know it's more i think we don't have enough awareness of what the risks are going on we go through the day we're just trying to get through it in basket so we're not even aware of the fact that some of these things are unconsciously happening so once you 
open that up and see the signals, whether it's you're aware that your breathing's changing while you're checking emails or that your glucose numbers have trended in the wrong direction. It doesn't take a lot of effort to make these changes. For a lot of my patients, it's like after you've had two or three back-to-back meetings, that's a really good time for you to step away from the screen for at least 10 to 12 minutes and just do some breathing, go outdoors, and then come back in. You know, because otherwise we have this approach to health and wellness. It's, you know, get a fitness trainer, you know, burn thousands of calories, you know, do all these extreme things, fast for 18 hours. And I'm not saying those are not, not, not good things to do, but some people are either doing that or they're doing nothing at all. And there's so much in between stuff that we can do to manage these things. But that awareness, and that's my job is to create, even through this interview, is to create that self-awareness. I'm not saying everybody has to get a glucose sensor, but if you know that back-to-back-to-back meetings and breathing improperly is not good for you, can we step away and do things a little bit differently? Can we integrate even five to 10 minutes of mindfulness while I'm showering or having my breakfast? It sounds so like, um, it sounds like, well, how could that help me? But when you see the metabolic numbers and the impact it has, it's super powerful. And hopefully that leads to chain reaction of some other behaviors and habits we can integrate into our daily life. I love it. Well, Dr. Ron, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people learn more about you? How can they engage? Um, where can they get a copy of the South Asian Health Solution, a culturally tailored guide to lose fat, increase energy and avoid disease? Yeah, I'd say the central hub, just going to my website and my blog would be the best place. And for that, you can go, the easiest URL URL is my name. So just go to ronishsinhamd.com. So that's R-O-N-E-S-H sinhamd.com. And from there, you can launch into my program. So more recently, the program that's getting a lot of attention is a program called the Meta Program, which you can link to, and that's at themetaprogram.com. And that's literally where I teach busy professionals how to integrate health and wellness into their days, like during Zoom meetings, how do you get stronger physically and mentally? So I think going to that website would be great. And if you are a social media follower, I'm at Ronish Sina MD at Instagram. That's where I post some scientific research and daily habits and tactics that I use in myself and in my patients as well, too. Love it. If you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Dr. Ron your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to ronishsinhamd.com you got it yeah r-o-n-e-s-h-s-i-n-h-a-m-d.com check out themetaprogram.com you got it as well and i mean i wrote down small changes big results so it's all we're all busy we all have a lot going on so the more you can integrate those small little bites into your day that's how we find success and then find him on instagram as well i'll link all those in the notes of the show Sounds great, Dr. Ron. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care. And until next time, remember, do your part by doing your best.